Well, good morning again. Great praise and worship. Always great to have live worship. Our worship is always good here, but the added bonus of live worship is really, really good. I'm down here because I'm going to be using PowerPoint, and I only have 36 slides this morning. No, I don't. All right. Okay. Having already prayed this morning, you know, I'm going to be preaching out of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to be uh, reading verses 1 through 10 here in a minute. And um, I, I didn't give your... Oh, okay. I, I knew I didn't miss one of your kids. I... <laughs> okay, that's awesome. Um, so we're going to be reading out of Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, you know, the theme for this week is joy. And we live in an unsettled world with a lot of uncertainty. And the headlines are not always favorable, and that's par for course. It seems all news is bad, and the headlines are sensational with the latest scandal, the latest scare, and they all incite fear. The stock market volatility for those close to retirement or in retirement is a concern. Supply chain shortages... And let's not forget the continuing saga of COVID-19 and now a new variant that's coming out that's got everybody worried, scared, living in fear. It's easy to lose one's joy in the midst of all this turmoil. But I propose to you, despite all of these uncertainties that we face, we can find true joy in the Lord. And Paul reveals this in Philippians. Let's start with reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's the key text. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, is it safe for you? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and to put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Now Paul goes on to brag a little bit. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But here's where he turns in this scripture and starts talking about where our true joy is found. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His suffering 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, in speaking about the uncertainty of the world, it is on. Paul knew a little bit about suffering. This letter of the Philippians is one of his prison epistles. He was in prison when he wrote this. And if you read his letters, he will reveal to you all of the suffering that he had went through. He was imprisoned numerous times. Beatings. Near death, hunger. Shipwrecked. Countless dangers, stoned, whipped, and on top of that, the care for all the churches that were planted and under his care. If we really study Paul's life, and I know some of you have, he lived a life of suffering after his road on Damascus experience with Jesus when Jesus called him to serve him. It's a road I don't think any one of us would like to go on. But it's a road nonetheless that Paul traveled. And yet, through all of that, he found true joy in God. He said, rejoice in the Lord. That's where he places his joy. That's where he derives his joy. is from the Lord. And so let's study that just a little bit. What is a word, what is the term rejoicing, or what does joy mean? Joy is the internal divine emotion that assures the believer of God's providence and sovereignty, that transcends the circumstances of this world. It is a gift of God by way of the Holy Spirit, and it is established by God's grace and the redemptive work of Christ given us the great assurance of His return and our eternal inheritance. Long definition. Simple terms, joy is really the deep assurance that we are Christ's. No matter what we face, He will work out good for those who love Him and that we are His for all eternity. Joy is not a state of mind. Joy is not having the right attitude about life. It's not a personal disposition that one can turn on or turn off. When I was looking up references as to how the world finds joy, I found a book that says 12 easy steps to finding joy. I don't know about you, but I'm not working through 12 easy steps to find joy. That just seems to take my joy away if i got to go through 12 steps to find it. True joy is an assurance. And it's sourced only by way, as Jason and Allie spoke this morning of, by the Holy Spirit. Because it's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we receive when we believe upon Jesus Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are given this fruit for the purpose of transforming this life that we have in Christ to be the full measure of Christ. 
And joy is a fruit of that Spirit. And it reflects the assurance of Christ in all that we do. And that's how we can have joy in the midst of all those things that Paul suffered and things that we go through. You know, it happens to all of us, unfortunately, at times where we lose our focus and therefore we look to find joy in other areas. As a result, we defer to our old nature when we do that. In fact, that's what always happens. Whenever we lose our focus on Christ, what do we do? We go back to what's familiar. That's our old nature. We know it. It's comfortable. might even be easy. As a result, some try to obtain this deep-seated joy, this deep-seated boy that exists by way of happiness, by trying to do things or buy things to fill that void. I was talking with my sister this week, and we were talking about a relative of mine, a relative of ours. And this relative goes out and buys things to feel this boy, to feel happy, to feel this joy he knows he doesn't have. He once went down to Rapid City and bought a Harley Davidson electric, big old thing, shiny, looked like Christmas ornament. I said, I didn't know you ride. I don't, I don't even have a license. <laughs> How do you ride without a light? You got a permit? Well, yeah, but I don't ride. It was an impulse buy. Do you want to buy it? <laughs> no, I don't. But I know people who have to go out and buy something in order to make themselves feel good. That's not joy. But what's sad is we also do it in the church. If we're honest with ourselves, we attempt to fill this void with self-righteous works of religion and put our confidence in the flesh to feel good about ourselves in order to produce this form of, of joy that we're missing. This works great. Next slide, Mike. Okay. I'll tell you what, man, just, just cancel them. Just take it off. That'll be, that'll be a lot better. Okay, sorry for the distraction. In fact, when we look at, when we talk about people doing self-righteous acts in order to feel this joy that they have, we see two examples of this in the verses that I read from verses 2 through 7. And the first one that we see is the Judaizers. That's who Paul is calling the dogs, the evil workers. Judaizers were Christians who were Jews who mandated people to follow the law in addition to the grace. So it was grace plus works equals salvation. They never let go of the law. They missed the lesson that Paul taught about how Jesus fulfilled the law. They were absent that day in school. And so they pressured people, and Paul fought against them all the time. Paul the Pharisee. But Paul also gave us his own example of his own attempt to find his own self-righteousness, I believe, in verse 9. Only to find out that his true righteousness, which creates the true joy, can only be found in Christ. So this begs the question, why are we works-focused? Why are we works-orientated? 
Why when it comes to righteousness or joy or anything that we're absent of, we go to works? There's a couple of reasons for it. First one is pride. Pride. Should I try this one? At the heart of pride is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness has a hard time with accepting fully that which is not under its control. I had a buddy, Monty, high school friend of mine. And when we were in high school, he lives up in Billings now. When we were in high school, we were getting witnessed to on a daily basis from our born-again friends, right? And as uh, a Catholic, it was getting a little annoying. Anyway, we're sitting at Monty's house, and we're, we're uh, and praise the Lord that they were doing that, by the way. So... I was at Monty's house, we're watching a movie, and I said, Monty, do you, do you believe in all that stuff? Now, Monty's parents were, were Christians. They went to an evangelical church in Wofford. And so I thought, well, well, he's got a better insight in all this stuff. So I said, Monty, do you believe in all this stuff? Monty said, you know, I do. I do. But I want to have fun first. I want to live first. And then later in life, I'll just, I'll just get saved. That's not how that works. That's not how that works. We cannot self-determine our salvation. We can't determine, okay, you know, once I get past the Christmas season, Jesus and I are going to have a talk. That doesn't work that way. Now, pray for me because one day I'm going to Billings to meet Monty and I'm going to bring up that question. Did you do it? Or are you still living? It's going to be an open door. So pride. Second one is it feels good. Validation is a powerful motivator. Now, there's nothing wrong with serving the church and doing things for the church and providing your contribution. God never designed us to walk through life with, oh, woe is me, heavy on the chest. He he desires us to have joy. He desires us to have happiness and to share that happiness with other people. But we must be careful that we do not determine our joy by the validation that we receive. It's a dangerous drug. Because now your service is going to be about what kind of validation you receive versus just doing it for the Lord and for His joy. You can actually test yourself in that. You ever done something and then nobody came up and said, great job? Or did you do that? Or maybe they do something else, right? Todd and Jen, thank you very much for the Christmas decorations you put up in here in the church. It wasn't Todd and Jen. It was Mike and Sherry. How do you deal with that? It should be an indicator that maybe we're not doing it for the right reasons. Now, should we give credit to those who do well? Yes, absolutely. Should we celebrate in the church the things like Christmas Eve party, the decorations in the church? Absolutely. But do not use that as your true source of joy. Because you'll get in a vicious habit of always seeking it. Third, we have an intense sense of justice, don't we? Sure we do. Sure we do. And because we have an internal sense of justice, guess what? This principle comes into play. Our good works must outweigh our bad works. 
Our good works must outweigh our bad works. Have you ever sinned and just felt horrible about what you did and you tried to make it up to the Lord by reading a little bit more of His Word? Great. Always continue to read your Word. Wrong motivation. Or maybe I'm going to dedicate more of my time and I'm going to serve the church more. Again, not a bad thing. Wrong motivation. Or I'm going to give more money. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to involve myself more to make up for this sin that I committed. Again, great, mo- great, do that, wrong motivation. Or Lord, I'm going to atone for that sin that I committed. I'm going to make it up to you. You can't atone for your sin. Only Jesus can atone for your sin. The sin that you committed yesterday, the sin that you commit today, and the sin that you commit tomorrow has been paid for by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's been paid for. You can't atone for it. Yes, we are to confess our sins. Yes, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and unrighteousness. But remember, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that we are saved by grace and not by works. What God calls us to do when in relationship to sin is to confess it when convicted, repent of it and change, and then depend upon Him for the power to do it. Our confidence in salvation is not by the grace. I'm not going to even look up there no more. Our confidence in salvation is not by works, but by grace of God in the work of Christ. And this gives us great joy when you embrace it. So where does true joy come from? Well, God reveals in the scriptures that we read this morning three sources of true joy. As Paul has expressed it. And the first one is joy comes by knowing Christ. Joy comes by knowing Christ. Paul wanted to know Christ beyond just knowledge. Just knowing who Jesus is and what he has done and where he did it will not change your heart. Paul already knew who Jesus was. Remember, he was persecuting the church. He knew who Jesus of Nazareth was, and he knew who was following as his disciples. He had letters to put him in prison. He knew all about this movement and who was, imp- who was, who was pushing it. You know, you could go outside right now. Just go to the mall. Just find somebody you've never met before. Sit down and say, hey, what do you know about Jesus Christ? And I guarantee you they'll probably say, well, let's see. Uh, he was born of a virgin in a manger to a lady named Mary. He was born in Bethlehem. Um, He came to minister and maybe, you know, he came to die on the cross and he was uh, crucified and then he was put in the tomb and on the third day he rose again and that's why we celebrate Easter. Most people know that. We live in a Judeo-Christian nation. Most people are going to tell you that. So they know about Jesus, but do they know him. Do they know him? Do you have a relationship with the Lord? Odd question in a church, evangelical church, right? Sunday morning worship, but it's a good question nonetheless. Now, I'm going to talk about Facebook. I don't mean to 
disparage Facebook. I don't Facebook personally. I don't believe it's some kind of bad mystical thing. I just don't Facebook, right? And I don't, please, don't take offense to anything I'm about to say about Facebook, okay? Because I know a lot of you Facebook, and that's great. We have a Facebook page at the church. I need to get my video up on that Facebook page. I get that. So please don't take offense. But, you know, a lot of times people say, I have 100 friends on Facebook. I have 200 friends on Facebook. Do you? Now, I know what a friend is on Facebook. It's somebody that clicks and likes what you got, and you become a friend, and you don't become a friend. If you get mad at them, you defriend them or whatever they do or banish them or whatever it is that you guys do, excommunicate them. But do you really know all of them? In my job, I, one of the things i got to talk about with people is a thing called foreign contacts. Do you have any foreign contacts? Well, one day I printed up the case papers on this. Most times, uh, case papers for a case is 25 pages. This was over 100 pages. Like, what is making this thing 100 pages? I went to the foreign contact section. He had almost 100 foreign contacts. He knew 100 foreign people. Well, then I started reading through it. They're all, like, they got gamer names. This guy was a gamer. And he was playing online with people overseas. I'm like, so when I sat down with him, I said, what's a foreign contact? Did you read the directions in the forum? Well, they've told me to put down everybody I have contact with that's a foreigner. No, that's not a foreign contact. Foreign contact is someone who you spend a considerable amount of time with, who knows you very well, and that you are obligated in some way, shape, or form in maintaining the relationship. Oh. Well, then how many of these? None. Okay, well, the interview was very quick after that. In order to have a relationship, we must know the person beyond just being acquainted with them. And one of the reasons, one of the ways that we do that is first we must spend time with the person. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Luke writes, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray in seclusion. That's from the Amplified Bible. How much time do we spend in private prayer with the Lord? Now understand, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, would spend time in private in praying to the Father. How much time do we spend quietly in prayer with the Father? Now, there's all manners of prayer. You've always, we've talked about prayer here a lot. There's all manners of prayer. And yes, we might spend 30, 40 minutes just lifting up requests to God for all the things that we have need of. There's nothing wrong with that. Set aside time to do that. But how much time do you spend in quiet prayer with the Lord? Like in a relationship. Bearing your heart out to the Lord. Letting Him Reveal his to yours. How much time do we do that? Matthew 6, 6, but when you go and pray into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. There was a time for corporate prayer, but there was a time of secret prayer. The time where you need to get away from all the distractions of the world, find that quiet place where you can sit and meditate upon the word of God. And I don't know about you, but it takes me about 15 minutes to get in that. To, to just... Flush away the things of the world so that I'm focused on the Lord. How's your quiet time with the Lord? How's your quiet time with the Lord? 
How's your relationship with him? A true relationship requires time together, communication. If you don't have that, you're just a mere acquaintance. So I looked up that word. What does that mean, acquaintance? It's a person who knows slightly, but who is not a close friend. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know them. Most of the people on your Facebook page are probably just acquaintances. I know who they are, but I really don't know them. Are you a mere acquaintance of Jesus? Or are you in a relationship with Jesus? To know Christ also is to know him by his word. Now, when I sit and I talk with Josh and I ask him questions about where he's from and where's his family from, what does he like, what does he doesn't like, it's a two-way communication. It's me asking questions, John giving me answers. He's asking me questions, I'm giving him answers. That's the importance of the Word of God. And that's why Peter writes, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't just shake the hand of Jesus and say, we're good. I got to get to know you. How do you know Jesus? It's right here. It's right here. You will know his heart. You will know his passion. You will know what he thinks of you. You will know what he wants from you. You will know everything you need to know about Jesus in an intimate way that you didn't already know because of his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And later in 1 John 14, and the word of God walked among us. This is the word of God. This is who Jesus is. And when we do, we deepen our faith in him. When we read God's word, we deepen our faith in him. We deepen our trust in him. And it increases our relationship and dependency upon him. Do you ever just sit and read God's word and go, oh, Jesus, that's how you thought. Or like when the first time I read John chapter 7, Jesus, that's how you pray? That blew me away. I always wondered how Jesus prayed in the quiet. John 17 reveals that. It's all a revelation of Christ. Finally, we know him by loving him. Allowing him to love us and loving others. You know what the greatest commandment is. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. To truly know God is to give him all. Not just what you're comfortable in giving him. You're all. You give your heart, which is the center seat of your spiritual life. Your soul, which is the seat of your feelings, your desires, your affection. Your mind, which is how you think, how you meditate. You give that to the Lord. He wants it all. Not part of it. All of it. And when we do, we really understand what it means to love him. But in reality, we really need to know how to love, and that's why he loves us. He loved you first, 1 John. He loved you first. And so we must allow him to love us. And this one can be hard because of how we were loved in the world or how we were not loved in the world. Do you remember Sherry Berglund, uh, 
her devotional for the Advent Candle of Love where she said the world seems to or does love conditionally? We were raised maybe conditionally in love. If you do this, I'll love you. If you don't do that, I'm going to be mad at you. Guess what? We bring that into our walk in Christ. And if we don't understand how God loves us, guess what we're going to do? We are going to be on a conditional love basis with God, and we're going to go right back to all those works that make us feel better about how we are in the presence of God. God loves you completely. God loves you fully. God loves you with all of His heart. You are perfect. You are precious in His sight through Christ. You are His creation. He knows every hair on your head. And he loved you so much, he said, no, Tim is not going to go by the way of sin and eternal separation from me. He's mine because I love him. And he loves you, and that's why he chose you. He didn't choose you because you're a good athlete, because you got a great mind, because you do good things, or you're a snappy dresser. He loves you. Because you are his creation. You are his child. But you know how we really understand the love of God? It's loving others. It's loving others. To truly know Christ, we must love others. Now, how does that work, Tim? Loving others helps us to understand and know Christ. Loving others is sacrificial, isn't it? It's unselfish. It's setting aside yourself for others. It's looking unto other people's interests more than your own. It's esteeming others more than yourself. Loving others, especially those who don't appreciate it or even might even reject it, connects us to Jesus in a special way. You know why? Because that's how He loves you. First John chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, how does knowing Christ produce joy? Because when we have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ through prayer, when we understand who He is by virtue of His Word, and we study it, and we grow in the grace and the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ, and increasing our faith, and by understanding how He loves us and how we love others, that's how we can know God. That's how we know Christ in a relational way. Secondly, Paul addresses the fact that true joy is found in the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. Now I'm going to get a little theological here. We have all been born into sin. Nobody escapes it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Romans chapter 5. And as a result, Scripture tells us, no one is righteous. Not one. No one. Righteousness means this. Preeminently of Him whose way of thinking, feeling, acting is holy conformed to the will of God, who therefore needs no recidification, which means putting things right in the heart or life. 
It's perfection. Nobody has been able to do that except one, Jesus. Jesus did it. And therefore, Jesus has the righteousness of God. He is the righteousness of God. Now, if that's the case, that perfection's the standard, and we were born into sin, and no one is righteous, not one, then we got a big problem. How do we then become righteous? How do we then become saved with the assurance of the joy of salvation? The answer is by a term called imputation, or more specifically, the imputation of righteousness. It's the centrality of salvation, the imputation of righteousness. Now, what does the term imputation mean? Imputation means to impute something to ascribe to someone, to attribute to someone else a transfer of something from one to another. A good example of this is found in Philemon. When Paul is is writing to Philemon about Onesimus, remember him? Onesimus, the runaway slave? And he says, whatever Onesimus owes you, put that on my account. Onesimus doesn't owe you anything. I owe you now. That's a form, or an example, if you will, of the imputation. And Christ does that in His righteousness. We cannot obtain righteousness on our own works because we can't atone for our own sin. Meaning we cannot make amends or provide enough reparations for it. It's like a person going to trial and being charged with the crime. He or she cannot adjudicate their own case. They can represent themselves, but they can't adjudicate their case. They can't make the decision of their case. You have no control over that. That decision has been given to a higher power in the state of of North Dakota. It's to judges and to the state of our condition in Christ. It is Christ. Who is our judge? Enter into Christ, who lived a perfect and sinless life by the Father, and a perfect sacrifice, atoning for the sin. And if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are then justified. Justified is a legal term, meaning Christ paid the penalty that was due to your sin, and we are legally now rendered before the court of God as in His law declared as just. Just. It's not not guilty. It's not dismissed. Jesus came into the courtroom and says, I take everything that this man or woman is to be punished with on me. And God says, you're dismissed. The charges are dropped. By placing our faith in Him, He imputes His righteousness in us so that by Him and through Him, God sees us as righteous. For we are presented faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. Now how can we be before the Father if we're sinners? 
For God is holy and just and cannot look upon sin because he views us through the righteousness of Christ. Not your righteousness. R.C. Sproul, theologian, when speaking on the righteousness of Christ, when he said this, Make no mistake about it. Salvation is by works. Now that's from a Reformed theologian. That's kind of contrary to what I was just saying. Make no mistake about it. Salvation is by works. The law must be satisfied by works. But whose works? Yours or His? It's His. It's His works. Now when we understand the imputed righteousness of Christ, it brings us great joy. Why? Because now we understand that we can never atone for our own sin. We'll never achieve true righteousness by way of works. It's an empty pit. It will never produce the joy that God desires for you to have, knowing that you're His and that you present a faultless before the Father. Finally, true joy is found in living for Christ. Living for Christ. Paul found the secret of true joy in living a life dedicated to Christ. It wasn't a life of self-righteousness or the law. It was only by the way of Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This verse is a transitional verse. And that when we place our faith in Him, our life transitions from who we were to who we are. Or who we used to be to who we are to be. And we live this new life. Not in our own strength. Not in our own power. But in the power of the Holy Spirit. By walking in the Holy Spirit. Yielding to the Holy Spirit. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul wrote that to the church of Galatians. The desires of the flesh and it want and it wants will never produce the joy that we seek ever. It may produce a short-term happiness, but it will not produce a long-sustaining joy that is the deep assurance that God gives you. In fact, it will produce the opposite. It'll produce despair. Oh, sure, the flesh can provide a moment of happiness, but it's soon followed by guilt. It's soon followed by despair. A return of anxiety or doubt or everything else that works against the Spirit. And what God desires for us is to have true joy in Him, not a temporal one. The desires of the flesh are those things we used to try to fill that void that God is trying to fill right now with His fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. If you desire to have true joy in your life, we must go to the source, to the source of where that true joy is, and that is the Holy Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We were given a new life when we placed our faith in Christ. We no longer live as the world lives, but we live by the Spirit in the newness of Christ. 
Therefore, we are to produce the fruit of the Spirit as we continue to conform until we reach the fullness of Christ. Now, to walk means to yield. It means to give control to, surrender your life to Christ. Have we done that? Have we fully done that? Have we counted all things as a loss like Paul did? He gave it all up. He walked away from all of that. He never even thought for a second to return to it. Maybe tweak it, fix it, make it, make it his own in Christ. No, he left it all. The disciples dropped their nets and followed him. The tax collector stopped collecting taxes and followed him. Remember what I said about acquaintances? A person one knows slightly but is not a close friend? How many of us have met Jesus, believed in him, shook his hand, had a good conversation with him, maybe even asked him some life questions that's always been burning on our heart, only to just let be left standing there when he says, come on, follow me. Hmm. Come on, follow me. What I mean by this is how many of us have not fully given our lives to the Lord? And he's more of an acquaintance than a savior. And we seem to have a life where we struggle to maintain joy in the depths of our soul. When we fully give our lives to the Lord and place our full trust in him and desire and a deep and intimate relationship with him, we will have joy that transcends the circumstances that we face in life. We may not be happy we may even feel anxious at times, given all the stress that we get from the world, but your joy will transcend it when you put a focus and trust and belief in Christ in the midst of it. True joy can only be found in living in, through, and for the true source, which is Jesus Christ. So I'll leave you with this question. Where is your true source of joy? Is it in the things of the flesh? Is it in the things of the world? Is it in the things that you buy? Is it in the things that you do that bring you enjoyment? Or is your true joy found in Christ? If it's not, pray to God to reveal to you where you're misplacing it. Pray to God that he will reveal to you why you don't have this deep-seated joy. Because I, I, am, I am positive, by way of the promise of Scripture, he will reveal that to you. This is the time of Christmas. This is the Advent season. And today we talk about joy. And in the midst of everything that we face, we need joy now more than ever. That deep-seated assurance that we are his, he is ours, we abide in him, and that he's going to work out good for all that love him, and he is going to give us the strength to endure. I pray that's your hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for your word. 
I thank you, Father God, for, Father, the fruit of joy. Father, we just pray in your name right now that you would always be the true source of our joy, that we would seek it in no other place so that, Father, when we deal with these difficult circumstances, Lord, they may affect our happiness, but they're not going to affect our salvation in you. And so, Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word, and I pray your blessing to be upon it in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we close with the benediction from Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have a good week. Depart in peace. Okay. I wasn't sure if you talked to Tim about that. Yeah.